on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here. G'day. How are you going? Glad you could join me today because this is a great conversation you're about to hear. Now, if you've listened to this podcast or you're a union member and somebody follows this stuff, which we are kind of obsessed with and love, you would know that we've had our suspicions. We've known for ages that the big tech companies like Uber have at their core of their business model a drive and desire to drive working conditions and the status of workers down to the lowest common denominator. Not to be employees, but to be sole contractors who get paid bugger all, have no protection, no rights, no entitlements. But last week, we got the guff that proved all of that because thanks to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the Uber files dropped. This was literally thousands upon thousands of emails and documents that showed from Uber's inception throughout the last 10 years that it was running a vociferous and relentless campaign of influence and power broking with people at the highest level of government and institutions right around the world to try to ensure that its business model of having sole contractors who were not able to achieve the status of employees and everything that came with it was what would become the new normal. The Uber files have shone the light on what is something that is now a threat to the long-term well-being and health of workers all over the world. It's some superb journalism. If you just Google or put it in any search engine, Uber Files, you can dive right into all the stories about what have emerged from this trove of documents that the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the same people that brought you the Pandora Papers, have actually revealed about Uber, its practices and its ability to influence people and uh, those the powerful uh, in governments around the world. Well, the person who is responsible for putting together this exhaustive report through the collection of journalists who make up the ICIJ is someone who might be familiar to many of you, Fergus Scheel. Now, Fergus is the managing editor of the ICIJ based in Washington, D.C., but he also, for a very long time, was editor of The Age newspaper here in Melbourne, Australia. Over 20 years, he was national editor, state editor, and chief of staff of that newspaper before taking up this job in Washington, basically overseeing the activity of the most important investigative journalism institution in the world. So, I got Fergus on the line from his home in Washington as he was trying to get dinner ready for his family to talk about the Uber uh, files, which he has been in charge of, who brought this all together, and to talk about the implications for Uber, for workers, for the gig economy, and what comes next. Here is Fergus Scheel. Fergus, welcome to On The Job. It's lovely to hear you, Francis. Lovely to hear you, Melbourne. Lovely to hear Australia. Uh, this is something that we've known for a while within the union movement, that the uh, big tech service delivery companies have been incredibly effective in reconstructing the relationship between workers and their employers for a long time. But what you've been able to do here has shone a different light on how that's been done. Yeah, the Uber Pilots Project reveals how the ride-hailing ride juggernaut Uber stormed into markets around the world, how it used stealth technology and evasive practices to thwart regulators and law enforcement in at least six countries, and how it deployed 
frankly, a phalanx of lobbyists to court prominent world leaders to influence legislation and help it to avoid tax. In relation to workers, it's really interesting because what we see from emails, presentations and text messages from 2013 to 2017 within the company, we see Uber officials led by the then Chief Executive Travis Kalanick carrying out a business plan that essentially proved to gradually undermine their own drivers. So how did they go about doing that? Where did they start? Because obviously they realised that in, in order for them to be successful and wildly successful, they needed to reduce their wages costs and their responsibility to their workers, which they've been largely successful at, though there is pushback increasingly around that. What did they do to begin that process? So what top executives advise local managers around the world to do is spend millions of dollars on lucrative incentives for new drivers. And then they steadily raised Uber's commission, depriving those same drivers of income and increasing the money that flowed to Uber. This is what the documents show. In public, Uber had one position, which they repeated, which was a message that its service empowered people to become entrepreneurs. But in private, it had a very different message, which was in the email exchange it had amongst company officials who referred drivers as a mass of supply whose low pay and minimal protections were necessary for Uber to profit. So in a way, it kind of reflects the what we know locally here has been the business model of conservative politicians. Here we heard the former finance minister, Matthias Cormann, actually say it, that in the previous Liberal government here in Australia, that low wages was part of their economic model and that workers were no more than units of production. So they, they actually said the quiet bit out loud in, in private conversations. Yeah, I think what the Uber files show in glaring detail in Fluoro is that previously it was known that Uber had a relatively, you know, ruthless business model. It had deployed ruthless business methods. And this is, has been widely known. But what we are seeing in the Uber files in the 124,000 records that were leaked to The Guardian and then shared by ICIJ, which led an investigation by more than 180 reporters in 29 countries. What we're seeing for the first time is a unique inside view of the lens that Uber went to achieve its goals. And those goals included courting world leaders, in courting leaders, thwarting regulators, and ultimately, in many countries, disappointing drivers. Well, let's talk about some of the specifics here and let's go back to the European experience because that's where the Uber arrival was fiercely contested, particularly in France in that period of time. And these documents reveal, and through BBC's Panorama program as well, that they spent $19 million on a lobbying campaign and a public relations campaign, Uber, to basically curry favour with politicians and uh, to help them assist in their campaign of disrupting Europe's taxi service. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so you know, $90 million is really just a drop in the ocean. That was Europe, that they were spending you know, tens of millions more elsewhere in the, in, the, in the United States. And what they did was they recruited a battalion of former public officials, including many former aides to President Barack Obama. They also uh, they recruited people that had worked with the Tory party. They, they recruited in every country, they recruited really carefully. They recruited really cleverly including, I should say, a former Labour senator in, in Australia who was amongst the people that they recruited. And then they appealed to these public officials, this battalion of former public officials, then 
appealed to actual current public officials to drop probes, to change policies on workers' rights, to draft new taxi laws, and to relax background checks on drivers. What we also saw was this kind of revolving door where people were public officials who then were to work for Uber. So it was a really, you could say cosy, you could say incestuous relationship. And things came to a head in France, didn't they? Because the French, God love them, they do love a protest. And when they go on the streets, they go hard, uh, particularly when it comes to jobs, livelihoods and protecting their rights. French taxi drivers staged a massive protest back, uh, I think it was about 2014, was it, around that time. And it was French President Emmanuel Macron who got involved here. And these documents reveal that Uber had directly had contact with Macron and had basically cultivated him as one of their own. Well, that's right. So um, Emmanuel Macron was a young minister on the make. He was the economy minister, and he was trying to, you know, he, he was trying to embrace Silicon Valley, embrace uh, the message of jobs. In France, Uber met with fierce resistance, violent resistance, sometimes which should be set from the far right. And as a result, Uber drivers in France suffered greatly. What we see from the documents, which is, you know, Depends on your view, but some would say it's, you know, it was a bid for public sympathy on behalf of Uber. Some would say that it was ultimately very cynical. But what you see in the leaked communications is that Travis Cullen, then the chief executive and co-founder of Uber, personally directed aggressive tactics to help the company in France and elsewhere. And amongst those tactics were to try to spin the violence, to try and get public relations benefit from it, to say to public officials, look, look what these terrible taxi drivers are doing, you need to back us. And in some countries that worked. And also was with the European Union as well. I mean, the ex-digital commissioner, Nelly Kroos, uh, was a top official in Brussels, was basically in talks to join Uber before her time ended uh, in that role. So you were talking about, you know, public officials basically uh, flipping and becoming advocates for companies that would then go and directly challenge the rules and regulations that they had previously been guarding. She was doing it while she was in the job. Yeah, the Daily Crow's uh, case is really interesting and it spotlights real issues around lobbying in Europe. So what they show, what the documents show is how this former, now former EU digital commissioner, Neely Crows, one of Brussels' top officials, was in talks to join Uber before her term ended and then secretly lobbied for the firm in potential breach of EU ethics rules. And since uh, our investigation came out a couple of days ago, the European Commission, which is the European Executive, has said that it should look at these members have said it should look at it and the Europe's foremost ombudsman in relation to this, Emily O'Reilly, has said that Europe really needs to get its house in, in order. So let's talk about Travis Kalanick. He's a you know one of those aggressive Uber capitalists who found the new tech environment perfect for how they wanted to operate because it was a new frontier with no rules. Suited him down to the ground. His ego was the size of a planet. Tell us about the time that he was supposed to be meeting. Then I think it was Joe Biden, vice president at the time, when he was supposed to have a meeting with Biden, and he basically uh, treated the then vice president like he was a junior busboy. One of the more entertaining. If you like elements of the documents are that they show privately uh, Uber executives expressing barely disguised disdain for elected officials. 
who are less than receptive to the company's business model. And so you, what you see is the Uber executives uh, meeting with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Germany was came out, he was then the mayor of Hamburg. He comes out and says that he, he really doesn't think what Uber is doing, what it's lobbying for is good. He's insisting that German drivers, uh, taxi drivers should be paid a minimum wage. And as in response to that, Uber executives decry him as a real comedian. And when uh, Joe Biden, who was then the US vice president, meets with Travis uh, at Davos, he uh, Kalanick texts a colleague to say that uh, the vice president is, uh, you know, running late. And he says, I've had my people let him know that every minute late he is, is one less minute he will have with me. So, you know, Travis felt that he was uh, bigger and better than the vice president of, the, of America. It's funny in, in a way, but it's also quite a sinister, isn't it? Because what it suggests is that Kalanick understood that in this environment, the way that uh, the global economy was evolving in the neoliberal world, that big capitalists, the big dogs in in this fight were actually more important, more powerful and uh, in control of what happened and that elected officials who were supposed to represent the public good were subservient to them. And I mean, it's something that people within the Labor movement have felt for a long time, but to hear it sort of lived out live and loud, it's, quite, it's still quite shocking in a way. It's, it's funny, but it's also quite shocking. You know, after Kalanick meets with Biden, Biden appears to amend his, his prepared speech and and goes on to say, talk about freedom to work as many hours as workers want to manage their own lives as they wish. So he parrots the Uber message. There is no doubt that this investigation by my organisation, by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and by The Guardian, raises really serious concerns about the way lobbying works around the world, the way huge companies, companies that are worth tens of billions of dollars can deploy huge numbers of lobbyists that are, you know, in many instances have just directly, they've almost, you know, barely got out of the chair in government and gone straight into lobbying. And the power of Uber's lobbying exercise can be seen simply by the people that they were using as lobbyists. I mean, they were using Jim Messina, they were using David Plouffe, they were using Rachel Whetstone. Uh, you know, they weren't using, you know, minor figures. They were using pig- figures that had bestrode the world side by side with some of the international politicians and that were then lobbying those same politicians. So it's part of their campaign and their idea was also to circumvent any uh, problems that they might run into at uh, a local level. So if a city mayor or a, you know, a local state official might want to regulate their own taxi industry or their rideshare industry, as they traditionally did, they just went around them and over the top of them. So it was, it was clever, but it was also you know, intensely anti-democratic. Well, I do think, I agree with you, Francis. I think that this this investigation, which I think is unprecedented in the way that it looks at lobbying in a forensic way, I think it does raise real questions about the price for democracy of uncontrolled lobbying, of secretive, massively funded lobbying, of, you know, lobbying by companies that can bankroll it to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. 
in an unprecedented way. So in the same way that Uber was using unprecedented venture capital funding to heavily subsidize journeys, in the same way it was doing it to seduce drivers and passengers onto its app with massive incentives and pricing models that would not otherwise be sustainable, it was bankrolling in, in an unprecedented way lobbying exercises that did literally bypass local authorities, local transport authorities, local transport ministers, and went to the wrong above. So what's been the reaction, Fergus, to this fantastic work? And congratulations to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists once again for for doing the hard yards on this. It's superb work. Has there been a political reaction yet, or, or what are you hearing? There has been a political reaction in in Europe. It's been both, you know, senior political figures defending themselves, such as Emmanuel Macron today, who came out and said he wouldn't do anything differently. And those on the other side, including, as I mentioned, uh, members of the, the, the European Commission, the European Ombudsman, and members of the uh, members of the European Parliament, saying, you know, enough's enough. This really has to be looked at. The price is too high for allowing the continuation of massive and oftentimes maverick lobbying. Because these guys knew all along, particularly at the start, that what they were doing was entirely illegal and they didn't care. They actually say this in these emails and and these documents you have. Well, it wasn't entirely illegal. I think that would be a stretch. But much of what they did was legal, but it raises ethical questions. What they did reference internally, which, you know, again, is quite glaring, is that their acceptance, their acknowledgement, their recognition that what they were doing was often causing a legal shitstorm. That's their words, not mine. And so what you're seeing is, for the first time, real-time discussion amongst lobbyists where they're saying, look, we are uh, embracing chaos. We are creating, uh, we are igniting fires. We are... Uh, either very close to breaking the law or it's arguable that we may be breaking the law. And so there's a recognition within the company that some of its behaviour, primarily around technology, but beyond that, is problematic. And there is no doubt that that secrecy and stealth, that seduction of global leaders, uh, did come at a price, a very high ethical price, for democracy. Just to finish, Fergus, uh, you spent some time here in Australia uh, working as a journalist, so you know the Australian landscape pretty well. What do you think the implications are for for Australia and for what should we be looking for within these documents from an Australian perspective? You did mention there was an Australian Labor senator who turns up in here. Is there any other references to the Australian experience within these documents that have been discovered so far? Yeah, there is. I mean, there's some stuff within the documents in relation to Victoria, there isn't a lot to do with Australia, but there are some Australian figures who appear. One of the more interesting ones is a, is a Victorian barrister who was one of Uber's uh, legal counsels, in fact, one of their senior legal counsel. And he was advising on how they deal with raids and with their way to deal with raids. So this is when regulators, when police, when investigators um, raided their offices in in response to you know complaints from taxi authorities and others that, that what they were doing was illegal. What they would do is they they had a manual and this manual was created in part by this Australian barrister. What they would do is they'd call they'd initially call a minister or someone to urge them to back down during the raids, and then they would do something that was quite remarkable and problematic, which is they would use remote switches 
to kill the commute computers in that office. And so if an investigator tried to get hold of the a driver, a list of Uber drivers in 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 in, in Amsterdam or in Paris, they could they could instantly from afar shut down all computers and uh, and then pretend that the computers were broken and no one uh, could fix them and therefore uh, the information couldn't be handed over to investigators. And that tells you everything uh, you that need. It's called a kill switch. The kill switch. And the kill switch tells you everything you need to know about just how good a corporate citizen Uber has been over the journey. Fergus, thank you so, so much for talking to us at short notice. We really appreciate it. As I said again, uh, our deep gratitude to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists for the work that you do and The Guardian for, for shining a light on this. And we thank you for being on the job. Oh, it's a pleasure, Francis. Take care, okay? Look after yourself. The managing editor of the ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, Fergus Shield, the man who, with his colleagues in the ICIJ, put together the Uber files, which are there. They're out there. Just search Uber files wherever you use a search engine. You can then have a deep dive into the sorts of practices that Uber have undertaken over the last decade or more to try to influence, curry favour with people in power and to drive down uh, the entitlements and the status of workers all around the world, including here in Australia. Thank you to Fergus for his time. And just as importantly, thank you to the ICIJ for the work that they do. You can go to their website, icij.org, and make a donation if you uh, feel like you're in a position to support independent journalism that does this kind of work because it's only through the auspices of Fergus and his team that these stories get revealed and give us, I guess, an insight into how power really works and what the implications are for workers and ordinary people. Thanks for being on the job. My name's Francis Leach. You can follow us at St. Frankly. That's my uh, Twitter handle. So go there and uh, you can follow me there. You can send us an email, otjpodcast at protonmail.com if you've got any questions or even story ideas or tips for us to follow. And we'll catch you on the next edition of On the Job. Bye for now.